And Sue came along, loved me strong That's what I thought Me and Sue But that too Time thing, paper ring. I know it's been done. Well, it's Neil Diamond week. Why? Because it's been a tough week. We all need a little Neil Diamond. Everyone stops what they're doing just for a moment to sing along to Neil, don't they? This man will be remembered 500 years from now, along with Lennon and McCartney, said someone on YouTube. I agree. <laughs> That's, a, that's you, a ringing endorsement. Do you, do you Sue? Well, I love Neil Diamond. You but see, is it, isn't it amazing though? I mean, these the they he, he might die, like say someone like John Lennon, yeah. but he's left behind all these magnificent songs that people sing for forever. Well, there was something about his style, his voice, his to- tonally. There's something about Neil Diamond that lifts your spirit. It does. Well, Phil. we were we were doing what. We were doing in the studio, I can tell your listeners, what everybody does whenever I hear that particular song. We were nodding along to yeah. it, we? we were sort of <laughs> driving along in our middle-aged sort of way. So, and it happens everywhere, in the United States or the UK or Australia, yeah. you hear that song and everybody starts. Right. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a truth to it that's it's, wonderful. Yeah, it's a nice way of describing it. it is, there is a truth to it. And on that note, it's the finals, final day of uh, the one and only Neil Diamond Week on RNZ tomorrow what need I play? 2101 is the way to get in touch. Very briefly, I want to sneak this in because you're a huge book fan and I often sneak recommendations from you. I know you are too, Sue, but Phil is always ready with a suggestion. What are you reading now, Phil? Well, I've just finished a wonderful book called Once Upon a Prime. Once Upon a Prime. And I can't, I can't, sorry, I can't remember the author's name, but she's a wonderful, clearly a highly decorated uh, maths scientist from Balliol College, Oxford. And she writes about the interface of literature and and mathematics and makes the point that for much of history, those two things were not apart as they are in our modern world. They were together. Uh, and she writes about the Greek authors. She writes about modern literature, including Eleanor Catton. Uh, she writes really? about the General in Moscow. She writes about Alice in Wonderland. She even writes about Jurassic Park and and all of the, the, the interplay, interplay between mathematics in terms of the structure of the book what was being written about, how it was being written. It's just a wonderful book. Read I, so I've read many of those. Yeah, it's a great book. I mean, I, I'll read it and I'll be happy I've read it. But um, it's, it's, a, it's just a great book to because you, you reimagine a book you've already known. The title again? Once Upon a Prime. And, of course, the luminaries did have a lot of number yeah, stuff the, in it, didn't the, it? Yeah. Thank you. Once Upon a Prime. Uh, it is 4.38, the panel, and uh, now to this. Imagine if you worked, walked rather, if you imagine if you walked into your workplace and up on the wall, a list with everyone's names and get this their salary maybe you would like to know what your co-workers earn but would you want them to know what you earn it was quite a topic uh, around the water cooler for us this afternoon this potentially embarrassing for those right at the top and maybe the lowest earner well let's find out Kiwi brand tracking startup 
tracksuit. With us is tracksuit's people lead, Christine Van Hoffen. Kia ora, Christine. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Really got the conversation flowing at work, this one. <laughs> so we've had reports about this, but here is a company that's doing it. How long have you been doing this at tracksuit? So we've, we've had pay transparency at tracksuit from the very beginning. Um, initially, in the early days, it was just by default because we were a small team of super collaborative people who all had, you know, they were all working together towards a common goal. So lots of conversations, lots of back and forth. Um, and so salary transparency was just, um, yeah, it just came naturally in that situation. Um, but like as we've grown, as we've um, grown the team, we're closer to 50 people now. Um, we've kind of formalised it into a proper salary transparency uh, policy. Yeah. How does it work? Um, so basically we have um, what you call an HRIS, an HR information system, where we store um, people's um, information and uh, one of the tabs there includes people's salary as well as their um, salary progression. So um, one of the nice things is you can see, it's a bit aspirational, you can see how people are moving through roles at Tracksuit, um, see where they started and where they are now. Um, and so people are just welcome to jump in and take a look at each other's salaries if they Goodness. want to. Well, this is, let's bring in your business head, Phil. What are your questions? Well, I must say I run a very small business, so it wouldn't be hard to work out. In fact, we do talk about salaries in the office a bit because <clears throat> because they're not a threat to anybody. Many don't. <clears throat> That's right. No, they don't. But uh, and, and Christine, I'm going to work on the basis this is voluntary. In other words, if somebody has a particular challenge with this, they either don't work for you or they or they otherwise are able to opt out. And I, the question I – and if that's the case, then that's great. I've got no problem with it at all. The question I've got is, does that transparency that you've got over salaries go to other things as well? Does it go, for example, to job types or to uh, other, other uh, personal issues that they might want to raise? So this culture of openness about salaries, does it lead to other questions about a culture of openness that, that you can talk to us about? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons that we um, decided to formalise the salary transparency policy because it, it lends itself. It's kind of like the most taboo thing that you can talk about. Um, and, mm. you know, we all place so much so much emphasis on connecting our salaries to our personal worth and it's just a whole thing. Um, so, yeah, we decided, like, if we can make the most taboo topic not taboo and easy to talk about and transparent, it would then, um, you know, lead into other areas of the business being more transparent. And so other things that we do regularly are share all our company metrics. Yep. We share things like our runway, yeah, um, our cash idea. runway, which is really important um, for a startup. So people know where we're tracking and how we're performing. Um, we share feedback. We share um, corporate strategy updates. Um, we try to just basically default to being transparent everywhere And in that context, of course, salaries are seen in context. So you know, yes. everybody realises you're not trying to rip them off. You know, nobody's making a million bucks out of the strategy. So that's a really – so I, I agree with you. That, that You can't be clear about salaries and, and unclear about everything else. You've well, got to be clear about how fascinating. It's like the metaphor is like sort of uh, one of those um, uh, iconic mid-American glass houses where you can look in and you can see everything. It's quite uh, – Paul says – I can tell you, I can tell you when I joined the public service in 1980, there was a thing called the stud book. It listed every member of the public service by department, grade and salary. We spent hours looking at it. It was great and meant high trans- transparency, says poor Sue Kesley. Uh, well, I just think it's a brilliant initiative. 
Um, and I, I might add, uh, Wallace, that my salary, I think, has been public for the last few decades as a city councillor, as an MP. I'm on a couple of public sector boards. All of them, all the salaries are um, visible, they're public, and there's nothing to fear. But the thing is that it's transparency is actually the key to pay equity. Isn't it like medical information? This is really personal privacy. No, no, but I mean, like everyone medical... knows what an MP is paid. Everyone knows what a... Um, so. But this is a private company. Yeah, okay, but, the, the, but it's just nothing to fear, having your um, salary, pe- that people know it. And I, I want to give you some examples. Uh, some years ago, a journalist, Matt Nippet, he worked he, he, under an Official Information Act. He found out that women presenters at TVNZ were paid, on average, 40% less than male presenters doing the same job. So as soon as it became public, they had to introduce pay equity. Similarly, in the BBC... Uh, it emerged that most of the top male presenters were earning way, way more than women. So they've had to have pay rises for 700 women staff members recently. So once it becomes public, uh, then then you can't uh, justify pay inequity. So it is the key to uh, pay equity. So just finally, Christine, uh, you're doing it here at Tracksuit. Would you recommend other private companies do the same? I absolutely, um, absolutely believe that salary transparency should be normal um, across the board. I think other companies won't necessarily have the benefit of um, having transparency from day one, Mm. which I do think has been really helpful because we basically roll it into, it's baked into our recruitment process. It's just part of our values. Everyone who comes into Tracksuit um, as a candidate for a role knows that that's the expectation here. Um, and they get to decide, like, if that is something they yeah. align with as well, if full transparency works for them. Um, I think it will be quite difficult to um, introduce uh, pay transparency in an established company because of what Sue mentioned. Um, there's those linked issues of um, transparency, but also pay equity. So really fascinating. if anyone else is interested um, in implementing pay transparency, they need to first... Um, you know, take a good look at their pay data and, and kind of um, oh, yeah. rectify any uh, pay equity um, issues that they've got. Christine, very good to have you on. Uh, sponsored a lot of chat here, so thanks for that. That's uh, Christine Van Hoffen, Track Suits People Lead. What do you think of this? Do you support it or do you think it's a terrible idea? Text me 2101. You can email me to the panel at rnz.co.nz. Phil O'Reilly, Sue Kesley, great to have your company. Now to this. Immigration numbers, an all-time high. New Zealand's annual net immigration soaring to a reported, uh, to a record rather, 110,000 as the post-pandemic surge of movement continues. And whilst it's enabled some employers to fill vacancies, there are still many businesses finding it hard to get the right staff. On top of this, figures included a net loss of nearly 43,000 citizens, of many of whom are going to Australia. Why? Better pay. Sharon Davies knows this issue. She is Propeller Recruitment's Managing Director. She's at the coalface. Welcome, Sharon. Hi, thank you for having me. A record 110,000. Are you getting applications? Are you getting resumes pouring in? Uh, no, I wish. That would be wonderful. And I guess my comment is, you know, around just giving a number um, like 110,000 isn't a true reflection of what's actually happening at the coalface. And I feel that there is a lot more questions that need to be 
asked and, and more data that needs to be looked at. Yes, I went online actually on your uh, Propeller website and gosh, just the number of jobs that need filling. And what struck me, Sharon, on your website was the number of health jobs that need mm. filling. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, and the healthcare industry is one that I talk about a lot because we look five years ahead. Uh, there are going to be more jobs than there are people in the country to fill them. And if that can sink in, that is very, very scary um, because of what that means for our healthcare system if we don't have enough people to fill jobs. And we don't now, and in five years, that's still going to be that way. Let's go around the panel. Sue Kesley, and you've, you've worked in health. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, there's no way that we can magic up 4,000 nurses and 2,000 doctors that we need here in New Zealand right now. Um, you, you know, it takes years. So I guess we've got no alternative to, you know, but to get them from overseas. But it, so, so this is sort of like this global merry-go-round. Our bright, well, a lot of ours are heading to Australia, so then we bring them in from somewhere else, and then they in turn end up being short of, um, you know, short of key staff, etc. So, um, but one of the problems with the health system is that once you become over reliant on overseas health workers, that in itself becomes a problem. I think fifty percent of our nurses are from overseas, and that's why when the pandemic, when the borders shut, we were the, okay. the crisis escalated. Okay, because uh, we're so that, reliant. Stay there, Sharon. Let's get Phil and you can respond to both. Yeah, I was, I was uh, struck by what you said, Sharon, and I completely agree. One hundred and ten thousand sounds like a lot, but it's it's everything. It's 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 family reunifications. It's kids. It's all sorts of stuff coming in, and so. The focus really needs to be on on what's the right number of skilled migrants who might be able to fill these job things that that, that I completely agree with Sue about. You're going to need them, but you can't rely on them forever. That's the first point. And the second point I think that you make is those 43,000 leaving for Australia. Not all of those will be, if you like, prime age people who we've just educated and they go off and use their skills somewhere else. But a lot of them will be. Mm. Uh, and they don't just leave for money, in my experience. They leave for prospects. They leave for a career. They leave because the housing's cheaper. They leave you know, because it's a more exciting place or Sydney's a bigger place than where they come from and so on. So there's a thing about making the whole of the employment situation in New Zealand more attractive. It's not just about pay would be my point. But I agree, Sharon, okay. there's, a, there's enough, there's as much that's that's uh, that's kind of obfuscatory about that 110 than accurate, as a matter of fact. There's, there's I, a lot can, of noise in that. Can I just ask you, Sharon, is it a bit frustrating trying to, in the recruitment sector trying to get, <laughs> trying to get the right fit uh, for the right uh, job? Because there are many very good and very skilled jobs going on your site, but it's a matter of finding that right person. It is, and a lot of the work that we do centres around working with organisations to help them define their recruitment strategy, define the role and, and who they're actually looking to hire. Um, and But you know, where, where we've come from over the last couple of years, and I'll be honest, most of the clients that I deal with are looking for someone who is skilled to do the job. There is nothing more complex than that going on right now. It's just give me the people that I can yeah. hire that can deliver the job so I can continue to operate my business. <laughs> That's it, straight up, isn't it? Let me ask you this. Okay, so say you live in Bolton, UK, or you live in Swansea. You're from Durban. You're from Singapore. You're thinking of moving. Do you think that New Zealand is an attractive place to them? And I was asked this this morning and I said yes. And then I thought that's actually a question that we should be asking the people who are moving to New Zealand. 
Um, my, my first reaction is yes, I do think New Zealand um, has had a very good reputation and people do want to move here. What I have seen is a lot more um, thought and choice, however, going into it. So if we're looking at South Africa, um, they were very common to come to New Zealand, whereas now they are looking at other countries as in the mix of New Zealand as well. We're not necessarily the first choice. So they're weighing up Australia oh. They're weighing up Canada. They're weighing up other countries in the Commonwealth who have similar visa structures to us and not necessarily always picking us. I know a lot of Americans are sort of looking longingly at New Zealand and how they could possibly escape the American political system. Mm. Well, if they're skilled, uh, give our recruiters a call. (laughs) Um, For now, (laughs) Sharon, though, kia ora. Good to have you on the programme. That's uh, Sharon Davies there from Propeller Recruitment. Um, yeah, well, uh, and there is composition in Canada, for example. I read six months ago they're looking f- to fill one million jobs. That's right. And so the, the, yeah. as Sharon puts out this, the competition is so intense mm. because we all had this this kind of mess of a labour market during COVID. You know, the, the, the same sort of migrant issues that occurred in our country occurred in Australia and Canada and so on. And we just need to not be arrogant in New Zealand and say, hey, we're clean and green and lovely and you should just come and work for us and it's a privilege. Well, that's the same okay. with lots of places. All right, so if you listen to this and you are from overseas, you're one that has recently, in the last, say, five years, arrived in Aotearoa. Why did you do it? What do you do? Yeah. Let me know. I'd be very interested to do this and I'd be interested to follow up tomorrow. Email me, please. The panel at rnz.co.nz. Eight away from five with uh, Sue Kesley and Phil O'Reilly. And finally on uh, the panel, it's a celebration of New Zealand's early industrial history. And I get quite excited about this stuff. In the weekend Dunedin's Gasworks Museum opened, its door to the public for free. And it's part of the Otipoti Dunedin Heritage Festival that will be taking place until the 29th of this month. And it celebrates 160 years since New Zealand's first and last gaswork was opened. With us is Jonathan Quayorth, Dunedin Gasworks Trust Chairman. Kia ora, Jonathan. Good afternoon. How are you? Well, very well. You know, I lived in Dunners for 13 years and I didn't even know there was a gas works. What is it? What did it do? Okay, we unfortunately we hear that all the time, um, but this was Dunedin's, uh, it was New Zealand's first and last gas works. So it opened in 1863 and closed in 1987. Amazing. And it mm. opened to provide gas to light the centre city initially and then it provided gas for domestic purposes to a huge swathe of the city. It opened gas to light the centre city. Um, Other centres didn't have a gas works? Uh, They did eventually. Um, So there were gas works all over uh, New Zealand, but this was the first one. Great bit of old history, isn't it, Phil? Brilliant. When I read that story, I was reminded as a kid of my dad taking me to Motat uh, in, in Auckland, you know, and it's the same thing, you know, big old bits of kits and yeah. steam things and fire engines and trains and goodness. So as a kid, I just absolutely loved it. And I, I really love the fact that this is part of that industrial heritage of the South. And I was just in, not to speak against the Eden, but I was in Omaru the other day yeah. going to the Steampunk Museum. I mean, that's just a brilliant brilliant place unlike anywhere else in the world so down there if you're doing a date with doing a sort of a tourism thing down there this idea of new zealand's old industrial heritage and what people are doing is just it's brilliant. just fantastic brilliant. another reason to visit Oamaru, Invercargill as well sue kedley yeah. 
Yeah, well, uh, Wallace, I don't quite have your same enthusiasm. I'm, I'm looking at the... Um, on the website of the Gasworks Museum, all this sort of equipment and machinery doesn't really inspire me. Uh, however, look, I, uh, anything that um, you, you know acknowledges and and celebrates our heritage. It's Heritage Week. We've got a wonderful heritage program uh, here in Wellington, yes. and we just we just don't uh, pay enough attention and celebrate our heritage. So, even if it's machinery, uh, you know, why not celebrate it? But I might I might pay a visit to another museum than this one. Okay, give down uh, Jonathan uh, Sue is going to give the Gasworks a bypass. Um, Phil and I will I'll be, be there. I'll be there. Phil and I will be there. I want to know what happens there now. Well, as we open uh, once a week on Sunday, uh, just as a museum, so Sunday afternoons we're open for people to just come through and have a look at it. But we do quite a lot of other stuff too. So the museum is a, a place for community organisations to hire the space. So we have a lot of community groups coming in and meeting in our historic spaces. Um, we run special programs and events. We do theatre shows in the Fringe Festival, for instance. And we have a program of blacksmithing classes that runs out of oh, our forge. Now you've got um, me. Been, now yeah, you've got yeah. me. <laughs> Count me yeah, out. Very yeah. popular. <laughs> I'll, I'll get the leather apron. I'll be on there. Board, finally. You know? <laughs> no, Sue said, "Count me out." But, oh, I'll um, count her out. Blacksmithing I, I, calls. Anything for women down there, Phil? Oh. Like, well, well, actually, I have to say, Sue, that we have equal numbers, men and women, signing up for the blacksmithing classes. It's, what, uh, it's okay. not what do you say to that, Sue? I'm being stereotyped. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm fa- you've got parents and kids blacksmithing. I, I, I bet it's popular. It's hugely popular. We've got a waiting list of about 25 people at the moment, and it goes across all ages. So as you point out, we do parents and kids, parents and teens, um, all ages. Um, what is blacksmithing? Good question. So blacksmithing is the art of using a forge to heat and shape metal. So people who come to our classes might learn how to make a hook or a poker or something like that. And then more experienced students will come along with all sorts of sculpture or practical projects. Just oh, yes. anything that you want to make out of metal. Who, who gets to do that these days? Yeah. I mean, that's why you'd love to do that. Show you, If you had a son or a daughter, you'd love to show them that, wouldn't you? Do it yourself. I've it's never fantastic. heard of a blacksmithing course. Now I have. I'm tempted to fly <laughs> over to Otipoti and actually take enroll. Take your son. And, and take my son and enroll, uh, enroll us. It's just wonderful. This, all of this is a uh, final note. All this is a nice reminder of our deeply rich Industrial history, right? Indeed, and it's sort of a neglected area of of our history, I think. But I I think as our society moves further and further away from the old-fashioned industries, then keeping the memory of those alive is going to become more and more important and more interesting for generations which have never experienced that in their own working lives. Agreed. It's a fantastic, a fantastic idea. Well done. It's great. You've won me over. <laughs> Good. Oh, by the way, just just one question. Um, when did the lights turn from gas to electric? Uh, that's a good question. I think it was in the 30s, but I could be wrong. I'm sorry, I yeah, don't have No, it's all right. That's so, so interesting. Good on you, Jonathan. Uh, keep up the good work there. Jonathan Quayopeb, the Dunedin Gasworks Trust Chairman. And on that historic note... 
Uh, Sue Kesley and Phil Arai, kia ora to you both. Fantastic. Fantastic, fun. yeah. Thanks a little so bit much. of a Neil Diamond to take you out. A final Neil Diamond week tomorrow. Oh, there we go. I'm Wallace Thank Chapman. Us. Back 3.45 tomorrow, Friday. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next. I'll be what I